This is an ABC podcast. This is a train carriage. It was built in 1914 by the operators of the Orient Express. It started life as a dining car, number 2419D to be precise. Inside, there are dark wooden tables, black leather chairs and brass fixtures rattling as we hurtle along. But the train carriage isn't taking us on a physical journey. It's taking us through time. Thundering down the tracks, fueled by revenge and bad decisions, launching us from the end of one world war straight to the beginning of another. Today, we'll hear the story of the train carriage that delivered two armistice treaties 22 years apart and how it became an enduring symbol of victory and humiliation. This is an object in time for the History Listen with me, Sarah Percy. I'm an Associate Professor of International Relations at the University of Queensland. In this series, we're taking a look at the objects which reveal some of the past's most fascinating tales. Together, we'll explore how they've shaped the world. It's 1918. Since the First World War started four years ago, more than 15 million people have died. Fighting is raging across Europe, in muddy French trenches, across sodden Belgian battlefields, on clifftops in Turkey, and throughout mountain passes in Austria and Italy. But by November 1918, the war is finally grinding to a halt. It becomes clear that Germany is not going to win the war, and it becomes clear to the German high command, importantly, in the summer of 1918. Margaret Macmillan is an emeritus professor of international history at Oxford and a professor of history at the University of Toronto. The Germans had launched a number of major attacks in the spring of 1918, hoping to break the Western Front before the Americans could begin to come in force. And those attacks had failed, leaving the German armies very much weakened. And they were running out of manpower. They were running out of materials. They didn't have enough petrol. They didn't have enough aviation fuel for their airplanes. They didn't have enough ammunition And so by the end of the summer, by the end of August 1918, the German high command, which had kept the civilian government very much in the dark, suddenly got back to them and said, look, we're losing. We've got to get an armistice immediately. We can't go on. Germany's military leadership knows defeat is inevitable. After four years of war, it's finally time for the Germans to start negotiating. Well, it was a curious sort of negotiation because the way the German government did it was by an open letter to President Wilson of the United States, who had for long been offering to negotiate between the Allies and the German, the Central Powers. Wilson had a plan. It was an optimistic vision that wouldn't just settle this war, it would fundamentally redesign world politics. It was called the 14 Points. It sounded very good to the Germans because it didn't punish them in any way. The Allies, led by French Supreme Allied Commander Marshal Foch, agreed to meet with the Germans. It's November 1918, two days before the end of the war. We're in a field in Compiègne, France. Between the trees are train carriages parked. It's a luxury train car um, built for somebody important. You know, it's, it's a command car. Michael Nyberg is the Chair of War Studies at the United States Army War College. 
it, it has you know working desks it has leather seats it's all paneled in dark woods and dark colors it, it's meant to convey power authority wealth it's it, it's there to be a kind of mobile command car if it has to be our train carriage parked here in the middle of a french field is where the allies have told the germans to meet and it doesn't appear that they chose it for any reason other than it was far enough from the Western Front that if the Germans were pulling a trick, they would have these German plenipotentiaries kind of in their own hands. But it was close enough to the Western Front that they could get them there fairly easily. They had given the Germans very, very specific instructions. The Germans had sent a radio message that was picked up by the Eiffel Tower radio tower. And the French responded with a message that told them exactly where to show up. Three cars, white flags with the bugler bugling certain tunes so they would know what was going on. And because of the damaged condition of the Western Front, the Germans showed up late, which made many French people, including Foch, think that maybe this was some sort of trick. So the three German cars, their automobiles, show up. The Germans are taken out of those automobiles and then they're driven to Compiègne. And then another railway carriage pulls up beside, that is, they're taken into one railway carriage. And a second railway carriage pulls up next to it. It's a railway siding with two two tracks. And the, the French and British, there are no Americans there, French uh, Marshal Ferdinand Foch, his adjutant, a uh, brigadier general named Maxime Vagand, uh, and the British senior representative, who was an admiral, uh, they step into the German car. And that's really the way that it's done. And Foch is surprised when he sees that there are civilians there, because again, he German civilians there. Because again, he had conceived of this as an agreement between military officers only. What happens next crystallizes our train carriage's legacy as one of history's most potent symbols of revenge and humiliation. Foch presents a series of of what the demands are. The Germans are really confused. They don't think they're there to uh, accept demands. They think they're there for some sort of negotiation. Foch makes it perfectly clear to them that this is not a negotiation. This is this is the document. They cable back to their government. The government cables back and says, "Look, we we think you basically have to sign whatever it is that that they put in front of you." And of course, the French are controlling the telegraph line, so they know exactly uh, the conversation between the Germans in in Compiègne and the Germans back in Berlin. So the Germans are at a real disadvantage in in almost every conceivable way. Uh, and at about five o'clock in the morning on the eleventh of November, they sign. Uh, Foch immediately takes the document to Paris, uh, sends a very wonderful cryptic uh, telegram to to Clemenceau before he does, uh, and then uh, that's it. And then six hours later, the the armistice is is announced as being effective. So they make it the the poetic eleventh minute of the eleventh hour of the eleventh day of the eleventh month. The armistice was signed. The fighting had stopped. The foundations for a treaty that could end the war had been laid right there in our train carriage. But the details hadn't been devised just yet. So in January 1919, almost the entire world descends on France for the Paris Peace Conference. It was time to negotiate the finer details of the Treaty of Versailles. China was there, Japan was there, a number of Latin American countries were there, Thailand was was there, because all these countries had joined in the war. But the key figures at the Paris Peace Conference, the key players were the big countries. And so those were Great Britain representing, in fact, not just Great Britain, but the British Empire, the United States, France, and Italy. And it was their leaders that were really the key figures in making the peace treaties. Together, these nations determined the terms and conditions for the Treaty of Versailles. Germany wasn't invited, 
but they weren't worried. I think the Germans felt to begin with that they had been offered a fair and equitable treaty by Woodrow Wilson. This was Wilson's 14-point plan. Wilson had said, the President of the United States had said repeatedly that he didn't want a punitive peace, he didn't want a peace that was unjust. And so I think there was an expectation, I think unrealistic, that Germany might actually come rather well out of any peace terms. They believed that they would be treated benignly, or, or at least as they saw it justly. But this isn't what everybody else had in mind. I mean, Lloyd George understood, the British Prime Minister understood very well that Germany and, and Britain had been each other's greatest trading partners before the First World War, and he understood that a lot of British prosperity depended on getting back to that sort of trading relationship with Germany. But he had to deal with the public. You know, the losses in the First World War were enormous. Almost everybody knew someone or had someone in the family who had died in the war. And to say to the British public, um, look, we're going to treat Germany rather well because we want things to get back to an even keel. We don't feel too vindictive towards them was politically impossible. And it was even more impossible in France. Um, a great deal of the war in the West was fought on French soil. And again, to say to the French public, and France, it must be remembered, took the highest losses proportionately of men to its population, I think, than any other country except Serbia in the First World War, and very, very heavy losses. And to say to the French public, you know, let's let bygones be bygones. We can't be too vindictive towards Germany. We can't expect them to pay very much. I mean, they, they you know, the, their economy is in a bit of a mess too. It was politically, I think, impossible. The Paris Peace Conference goes on for six months as the nations struggle to come up with an agreement. The sticking point is money. Britain and France want Germany to pay for the war, but that requires the Germans to take complete responsibility for starting it. So part of the treaty does just this. It becomes known as the War Guilt Clause. And that's not the only punishment. Germany loses large amounts of territory. Robert Gervarth is the director of the Centre for War Studies at University College Dublin. So many Germans kind of expect and accept the loss of Alsace-Lorraine, even though that leads to uh, the expulsion of um, quite a lot of ethnic Germans living there. Um, but the more controversial uh, territorial losses are definitely in the East. Germany loses so much territory in the East, it's enough to make a new country, Poland. Also, German territory in the Rhineland along the French border is demilitarized, and they lose Alsace-Lorraine completely to France. The German delegation leaves Paris with a lot of grievances. They've lost money, they've lost territory, and they've been blamed for the entire war. And as it turns out, it's not only the Germans who hold the belief that the treaty is unfair. I think it was pretty commonly held, and it didn't have to be only among the far right. And it's also worth pointing out that it was pretty commonly held among British and French observers, too, and American observers, uh, many of whom believed that the treaty just would never work, that you had asked things of Germany, that there was no way that it, it could give. The famous British economist John Maynard Keynes was at the treaty negotiations. He wrote... The policy of reducing Germany to servitude for a generation, of degrading the lives of millions of human beings, and of depriving a whole nation of happiness, should be abhorrent and detestable. Abhorrent and detestable, even if it were possible, even if it enriched ourselves, even if it did not sow the decay of the whole civilized life of Europe. John Maynard Keynes, 
no great friend of Germany, nevertheless looked at the final reparations bill and understood that one of two things was going to happen. Either Germany was going to pay the majority of these reparations and bankrupt itself as part of the European economy, or it was going to default and the Allies would have absolutely no way to extract that money by force because nobody would want to go to war again. Uh, he also understood that the economic arrangements that were being created out of the treaty were likely to cause a, a worldwide economic meltdown. The Germans don't like what's in the treaty, but they have two choices, sign it or go back to war. In June 1919, Germany signs the Treaty of Versailles. The place where this all started, our train carriage, cements its legacy in the German mind as the ultimate symbol of humiliation and defeat. Seven months after the Germans first stepped foot in our train carriage, they signed the Treaty of Versailles. In the Germans' eyes, they should never have even been in our train carriage. They claim they've been stabbed in the back by their own people. The stab in the back was a way for the German high command to get out of responsibility for having lost the war. What the high command began to say, and this was particularly pushed by the two key figures at the top, Generals Hindenburg and Ludendorff, they began to say, we could have fought on actually. Um, they forgot or they simply ignored their earlier pleas to the civilian government to try and get an armistice before things got even worse. They said, we could have fought on. It was only the unrest at home. It was only the traitors at home who prevented us from fighting on. We were stabbed in the back. And this became a myth propagated by the German high command, its defenders and significant forces on the right in Germany, that it really wasn't the, the armies that lost on the battlefields. It was the traitors at home that made it impossible for them to fight on. And those traitors, you can probably figure out who they would be. Those traitors were the socialists. Those traitors were the newly emerging Communist Party. Those traitors were liberals of various sorts. And increasingly, those traitors were Jews. There was a very strong whiff of anti-Semitism in the stab in the back theory right from the beginning. This is an object in time for the History Listen with me, Sarah Percy. I'm an associate professor in international relations at the University of Queensland. In this series, we're taking a look at the objects at the center of some of the past's most fascinating stories and exploring how they shape the world. Today, we're taking a closer look at the train carriage that delivered the armistice in two wars 22 years apart and became the European symbol of victory, defeat, and humiliation. It's 1919. Finally, years of war have come to an end. At last, there is peace in Europe. The treaty and all of its flaws still lurk in the background, but people are optimistic about the future. Back in the field in Compiègne, our train carriage still stands triumphant. It's parked in what's now known as the Glade of the Armistice, along with a statue of Supreme Allied Commander Ferdinand Foch. From here, it looks like the peace might just hold. That is, until 1929. The arteries of commerce were clogged, with 5,000 bank failures. 45,000 miles of railroads fell into bankruptcy. Big business that didn't fail retrenched and contracted. 12 million unemployed. 1931 brought the bread lines and the soup kitchens and the apple cellars and more unemployment. 15 million now. This indeed was total depression. 
any optimism for the future was dashed. And the results for the German economy are particularly devastating uh, in the sense that the German economic recovery of the mid-1920s is very heavily dependent on American short-term loans. And as soon as uh, the Wall Street crash happens, these loans are being recalled uh, with terrible consequences for uh, German businesses in addition then to the, uh, to the banking crisis. So in the early 1930s, you have a situation where one out of three Germans are out of work and become increasingly susceptible to radical political messages. So it's not only uh, the Nazi movement, which had been tiny uh, prior to 1929, is growing, but also the, the communist uh, party in Germany. And this leads to an increasing polarization of German uh, political life. So many people who find themselves in the middle, the centrists, if you like, uh, they feel that they have to make a decision between these two extremes. And the Nazi movement uh, really kind of grows very, very quickly uh, from being on the political fringes uh, before 1929 uh, to a mass political movement. And by 1932, they actually become the largest political party in uh, the German parliament without ever reaching an, an overall majority. So they're still dependent uh, in 1933 on forming a coalition government. But nonetheless, Hitler is now the leader of the largest political party in, in parliament. Oh, and remember that stab in the back that historian Margaret McMillan mentioned earlier? The stab in the back was a way for the German high command to get out of responsibility for having lost the war. Yes, that stab in the back. The Germans remember it very well. In fact, it's been repeated so many times that to much of the nation, it's now fact. It becomes pretty powerful. It becomes a way, again, to for the German people to believe what they want to believe about the war. It becomes a way, especially in the 19, late 1920s and early 1930s, as Germany really does begin to fracture between a communist left and a fascist right, uh, it becomes an easy way to, to use that stab in the back myth for political purposes to say, well, we can't let these communists come into power, socialists come into power, because they're the same people that stabbed us in the back in 1918. So it endures in part because it takes on a political meaning uh, far beyond the, the, the simply historical one. The stab in the back myth fuels rising anti-Semitism in Germany. It became one of the many charges against the Jews that they were not true German nationals, that they were working in the cause of international Ju Judaism, international Jewry, as, as it used to be said. And the myth of the stab in the back was used as yet another charge against this supposed international Jewish conspiracy. I mean, all sorts of charges were made by the far right, of course, including the Nazis, against the Jews, that they had stabbed Germany in the back, that they were international capitalists. At the same time, they were also responsible for international Bolshevism. I mean, anything that could be used to attack the Jews and to say that they weren't true Germans was, was used. And the stab in the back theory was very much part of that attack on the Jews. Hitler comes to power in 1932, riding a wave of anger about the settlement of World War I, propelled by the myth of the stab in the back. His first order of business is to reverse the Treaty of Versailles. He starts by remilitarizing the Rhineland and then turns to uniting Germany and Austria. He then incorporates the Sudetenland, which is actually the time when Europe is very close to another major war. And uh, there's famously the Munich Conference, where the Allies signal that if Hitler goes any further than this, then they 
will be forced to to go to war. But Hitler doesn't believe them. He thinks that democracy is is a weak form of government and that Britain and France are far too distracted by all sorts of trouble in their own empires. And therefore, he kind of keeps pushing. And his next victim then, of course, becomes Poland. And at this point, uh, the uh, British and French governments decide that he has gone too far and uh, famously declare uh, war. I am speaking to you from the cabinet room at 10 Downing Street. This morning, the British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note stating that unless we heard from them by 11 o'clock, that they were prepared at once to withdraw their troops from Poland, a state of war would exist between us. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently this country is at war with Germany. The British and the French did indeed declare war on Germany, but they didn't do anything. Um, they hadn't really worked out how they were going to come to Poland's defense. As Poland was destroyed in the autumn of 1939, you got a period called the Phony War, where the French sat in their strongly fortified Maginot line, looking across at the German borders, and the British um, contemplated what they might do to support Poland and how they might support France if, if war started. But war didn't really break out on a large scale until the spring of 1940. And in the spring of 1940, Hitler attacked into France. But the surprise and the speed of the attack took the French um, completely off guard and destroyed, I think, helped to destroy French morale. And within six weeks, the French government had decided that it couldn't fight on. By June 1940, France asked Germany for an armistice. The defeat was humiliating for the French. It was just what Hitler had hoped for. Naturally, he was keen to rub it in. Oh, absolutely. One thing the Germans want to do in 1940 certainly is make it clear to everybody in France who has won this war and who has lost this war that in four years, the French couldn't defeat the Germans on the battlefield, but the Germans defeated the French in six weeks. So there's a lot of symbolism that is attached. Hitler knew exactly how to mark his victory in 1940. Remember our train carriage back in Compiègne, the one that the French had the Germans sign the first armistice in? Well, Hitler remembered it too. That's the Nazi band that Paul Goebbels rushed to the famous railroad carriage in the forest at Compiègne. Here across the same table where Marshal Foch humbled the Kaiser's generals in 1918, Adolf Hitler had his revenge in a humiliating French surrender. So Hitler returned to the forest, to the train carriage, to claim his revenge. American war correspondent William Shirer was there when Hitler arrived. I looked for the expression on Hitler's face. I am but 50 yards from him and see him through my glasses as though he were directly in front of me. I've seen that face many times at the great moments of his life, but today it is a fire with scorn, anger, hate, revenge, triumph. They forced the French to sign the armistice of June 1940 in the same railway car that the Germans had signed in 1918. They then take down an anti-German memorial that had, that had stood at the spot 
uh, but they leave the statue of Ferdinand Foch in place so that Foch will symbolically stand guard over an empty forest. And then the railway car is brought back to Germany to show off to the German people as a, as a trophy of victory. Look, look what we have, look what we were able to bring back, look what we were able to do in it. Uh, so the symbolism that attaches to it is clearly one of fortunes that have been reversed. So Hitler's fortunes eventually reverse again. By 1944, the Germans are losing the war and Hitler's loyalists get nervous. At the end of World War II, the Germans are afraid of the carriage being captured again by the Allies and being shown off as a symbol of German defeat. Uh, so they blow it up, SS troops blow it up to make sure that it does not fall back into the hands of the French uh, and is not put back in Compiègne as another symbol of German humiliation. The train carriage wasn't just a train carriage. It was loaded with symbolism. What it symbolizes to me is the kind of link between war and peace, so that Compiègne becomes a place in which Foch and the French think they've ended one war, and of course they haven't. They've, they've created the conditions that, 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 that create just, just more hatred and more bitterness. So to me, it's a symbol of the importance of understanding war and peace not as opposites, but all as part of a spectrum and all as... Uh, two sides of the same coin, if you will. So that, you know, as we like to say, if you want peace, you need to prepare for war. You can also say that if you want peace, you need to think very carefully about the kind of war that you're fighting and, and the way you want to get to a better peace at the end of it. And Compiègne to me symbolizes an awful lot of that. There are a lot of reasons why the peace after World War I was so fragile. Germany had a long list of grievances, but not all of them were real. Some were myths, like the stab in the back. Others were symbolic, like our train carriage. When nationalism becomes uh, the driving force again, or the dominant force in, in Europe in the 1930s, this basically leads immediately to a return of some of the issues that were on the agenda uh, during the First World War. And this includes, of course, symbolic politics. So for Hitler, um, the whole idea of humiliating France in the same way that he felt Germany was humiliated at the end of the First World War is indeed of great importance. Otherwise, they wouldn't have gone uh, through the process in the middle of a war of uh, basically bringing that train carriage back to uh, where it was in, in November 1918 and making a big deal of uh, the French signing uh, the armistice in that particular location. The powerful symbolism of the train carriage finally died with its destruction. But as it turns out, the carriage's destruction was in line with what people now understood was necessary. You couldn't just win wars, you had to win the peace, and that meant doing away with ritual humiliation. Well, most of the architects of the European project, which, by the way, already, of course, existed in uh, the 1920s, there were many people who basically said, well, the lesson we should learn from the First World War is uh, ever closer cooperation. And this message is reinforced by the Second World War when the leading uh, politicians after 1945 basically agree that they can't keep doing this, um, you know, after millions and millions of deaths in Europe and uh, unparalleled uh, destruction, the alternative then becomes ever closer cooperation, which has been uh, the driving uh, motor of European unification basically throughout the uh, entire Cold War. And now with you know, Brexit, I think uh, once again, uh, the future of the European Union very much depends on uh, Franco-German uh, collaboration, cooperation, and a kind of joint vision uh, for what Europe should stand for going forward. It took two world wars to bring about peace in Europe. 
but lasting peace required a totally different understanding about how to end a war. The settlement of World War II rested on a strong vision of what world peace would entail. You can go to the field in Compiègne today. There's a train carriage there. It's reassembled with some of the broken parts. It's no longer a symbol of humiliation and revenge. The new carriage in the old field is a reminder that we can make peace and do it well. I'm Associate Professor Sarah Percy from the University of Queensland for the History Listen. The producer of this series is Edwina Stott, and the sound engineer is David White. Join me next time for another Object in Time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.